Hey there, gang. Looks like we've got a mystery on our hands. Welcome to episode one of the Meddling Kids podcast, where we cover all things scary and weird for listeners near and far. My name is Bree. And my name is Cord. And we are our roommates who met on Twitter in 2020 during a pandemic and became instant best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Our mutual interest for true crime storytelling has inspired us to come together and create this podcast called Meddling Kids. Mm -hmm. The name is heavily inspired by our favorite cartoon growing up. We would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. A disclaimer for our listeners, this podcast is not intended to disrespect any families, friends, or victims who are involved in any of the cases we cover. We simply research articles on the internet and gather information together for educational purposes. We would also like to add that this case includes discussion of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and a death of a child. With all that being said, let's just jump right into this case. Welcome to episode one of the Meddling Kids podcast. Today we're going to be covering the local case of the disappearance and murder of Dana Bradley. The first thing that Bree's dad said to us when we said we were going to be covering this case is that this was not a can of worms that we want to be opening. (laughs) So guess what we did? We said... Pass the can opener, babes. Let's pop open this can of worms. Dana Bradley was born July 24th, 1967 in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. She lived with her mother, Dawn, and her stepfather, Jeff. Dana was an exceptional student, excelled in school, and had plenty of friends who always described her as friendly and full of energy. She was in grade 9 and attended I.J. Sampson Junior High School. On December 14th, 1981, Dana had been hanging out at her friend Penny Cobb's house on Curry Street. Around 5 p.m., Bradley called home to let her grandmother know that she would be leaving Penny's house to walk to the bus stop to get a ride home to her home on Patrick Street. She was on her way home to celebrate her mother's birthday. Around 5.20 p.m., eyewitnesses Harry and John Smeaton, who were brothers from Gander, Newfoundland, spotted Dana hitchhiking down Topsail Road towards downtown. The pair of brothers were selling Christmas trees at a roadside stand at the time. They witnessed Dana walking down Topsail Road with her thumb stuck out, and they actually made a point to say that the girl looked awfully young to be hitchhiking. The brothers witnessed a man pull over and talk to Dana. They reported the man driving an either 1973 to 1976 Plymouth Valiant or a Dodge Dart that was light yellow or beige in color and was noticeably rusted. The passenger door of the car was broken. As witnesses recall, they seen the driver of the car reach over to open Dana's door from the inside. Where Dana wasn't able to open the door from the outside, it was said that it was actually a sign from God to not enter the car. When Bradley never returned home, her parents began to worry as she was always someone who was punctual and on time. They did phone the RCMP to report their daughter as a missing person. When Bradley was reported missing, the police decided that it was too late to begin searching for Dana and that they were too busy at the time of the report. They did not begin their search until the next morning on December 15th. Upon news breaking of the missing girl on December 15th, the Smeaton brothers quickly recognized the pictures of Dana as the girl they had seen getting into the car the day before. They immediately called the RCMP and reported what they had seen. The Smeaton brothers were the prime witnesses in this case and the last people to have seen Dana alive. Four days after Dana's disappearance, on December 18, 1981, a man named Dale Smith was searching for a Christmas tree with his family 
in a wooded area in Maddox Cove. Dale intentionally chose an area that wasn't very populated so that no one would notice a tree was missing. The area he was searching was a place that was typically used for dumping trash. That's why he wasn't surprised when he came across a pile of what appeared to be toys dumped deep in the woods. As he looked closer, he seen what he thought was a mannequin laid out in the snow. Sadly, he soon realized that it was not a mannequin, but the body of a young girl wearing blue pants and cowboy boots. Quickly, he realized that the clothes the girl was wearing matched a description of a missing girl that he recalled seeing in the news. That girl was 14-year-old Dana Bradley. Ugh, this part creeps me out. Bradley was positioned carefully on the ground with her body in a burial position, as though she was laying in a coffin at a funeral. Her clothes looking neat, her face wiped clean, and her school books tucked under her arm. Upon discovering her body, Smith rushed his family out of the woods. He spotted a man at the end of the trail and asked the man to stay in the area and keep an eye out so that he could return to his home in Shea Heights, where he used a landline to call the RCMP to report the location of Bradley's body. When the RCMP arrived at the crime scene, they confirmed that the body was of the missing girl. Her autopsy confirmed that she was murdered by blunt force trauma with multiple blows to the head, and she was also sexually assaulted. An intense and very highly publicized investigation followed. At the time, it was described as the most expensive and exhaustive murder investigation in Canadian history. Hundreds of people were interviewed and thousands of tips piled in. More than 800 cars were examined in the weeks following Dana's disappearance. They were desperately looking for the car that was reported by the Smeaton brothers. The initial task force was composed of 35 full-time investigators from the RCMP and the RNC who worked around the clock on this case. As stated before, hundreds of people were interviewed by police as witnesses and suspects. But there are a few suspects that really stood out to us. Let's dig into that a little more. But before we do, let's keep in mind that all information stated in this podcast is taken straight from sources in the media. We are not making any accusations and are strictly using information from our research for educational purposes. For our safety and the safety of others, the following part of the podcast is not to disrespect or accuse anyone whose name is mentioned. I would also like to add that we will not be discussing our own theories on suspects during this episode of our podcast for our own personal safety. With that out of the way, let's move on. It was speculated at a certain point, which is unknown, that a potential suspect for the case was a man by the name of Shannon Murn. Murn, a Newfoundland man had an extensive history of being suspected in many crimes. I can now understand why your dad did not want us to open a can of worms on this case. Murren seemed to travel back and forth between Newfoundland and British Columbia. During his time in both places, a lot of similar crimes occurred. Shannon had a lengthy criminal record and was also suspected and connected to multiple robberies, disappearances, and sexual assaults between the 1970s and the 1990s. Murren was actually accused and charged in the 1994 murder and sexual assault of an eight-year-old girl by the name of Mindy Tran. The RCMP suspected Murren, who lived near the Trans in Kelowna, from the start, but the evidence was largely circumstantial. The trial was originally scheduled to begin in May 1998, but was postponed until 1999 after a British lab completed DNA tests that linked Murren to three hairs found in Mindy's underwear at the gravesite. Previous DNA tests on the hairs, done in Canada, had been inconclusive. After almost a week of deliberations, the jury ruled Murren wasn't guilty. 
He gave them a thumbs-up signal as they filed out of the courtroom. Murren was the only suspect in the Tran case. He publicly proclaimed his innocence and sued the police for their actions, claiming he'd been framed. In 2000, Murren, a free man, then moved back to Newfoundland with one of his jurors, Kathy McDonald, who later admitted that they had fell in love during the trial. December 1981, Dana Bradley is murdered in St. John's following Murren's sudden departure from Kelowna in the fall of 1981. The description of Dana's killer matches Murren. This means that Shannon was in Newfoundland during the same time Dana was killed. RCMP reported that Shannon was a prime suspect in the case. This is where the case gets a little bit bizarre, as we are going to discuss a man by the name of David Summerton. In 1986, the chief of police had received an anonymous letter about a man named David Summerton, stating claims that Summerton had committed the murder of Dana Bradley. Police followed this lead and brought Summerton in for questioning, where he confesses to the crime and is charged with first-degree murder. He continues to tell police where he had buried the weapon and that it was near Dana's body. David also tells police that he had dumped the car he used to pick up Dana at the local Robin Hood Bay dump. The RCMP dug up anywhere they could near where Dana Bradley was found, and they did not find a thing. Furthermore, they could not locate the car that was supposedly in the Robin Hood Bay dump. When questioned again, David claims he lied and he was forced by police into giving a false confession. I think it's worth mentioning that Summerton was someone who struggled immensely with mental illness. He claimed he had been interrogated for nearly 18 hours and was quoted saying, I was on the verge of flipping out on them and I was in a suicidal state in that room. He said, have me charged or get me out of this room. And then I started telling them where the car was. Then I told them where the murder weapon was. I was doing anything to get them off my back and to get me out of that room, including confessing. Eventually, due to lack of evidence and his story being completely inconsistent with the murder, first degree murder charges on Summerton were dropped. Although he was charged with mischief and sentenced to two years in prison for wasting so many police resources. In 1999, he was also sent back to jail for sexual assault on a 14-year-old child. And in 2010, he was convicted of indecent assault on a 12-year-old boy about 30 years prior and was sentenced to 18 months in jail. He actually passed away on January 2nd of this year at the age of 70. The last suspect we'll be discussing in this case is a man named Thomas Carey. Although there is very little information online, we have found some interesting points. Carey was a well-known leader in his community of Whitless Bay. A lot of people thought very highly of him, and at one point, he was the mayor of his town. And he also worked as a janitor in a school. In the mid-60s, his wife's parents passed away, leaving five small children. Carey took the children in to live with them, which appeared to be something only someone with a good heart could do. But years later, as the children grew older, they came forward accusing Thomas Carey of sexually abusing them almost immediately after he had taken them into his home. Thomas Carey was convicted and served jail time in the early 1990s for multiple sex crimes against boys and girls. The incidents, which occurred between 1969 and 81, included indecent assault, buggery, and gross indecency. Carey later received a pardon, something that is no longer available for crimes against children, but it was revoked in April 2014. Now, let's talk about why Carey was considered a suspect in the Dana Bradley case. For Carey to be tied into this case, we need to talk about Robert. It should also be known that Robert is an alias that was used to conceal the identity of a man online and in the media. In 2014, Robert had come forward with information to RCMP. Robert stated that he knew who killed Dana Bradley because he was there and witnessed her murder. Allegedly, Robert, who was six at the time, and his brother, who was four at the time, were in the back seat of his dad's 1972 Dodge Dart the evening that Dana Bradley was picked up while hitchhiking. The person accused of driving this car, you may ask? Well, according to Robert, his neighbor, 
Good old Thomas Carey. Robert claimed that no witnesses reported seeing him and his brother in the back seat of the car the night of the murder because there were no booster seats in the vehicle. This would have caused the two brothers to have been too small to be seen through the windows. He tells the story of how he had a conversation with Dana while they were in the car. That Bradley had given Carrie the address to her house, and although he headed in the direction of her home, he continued to drive past it. As he did, Robert recalls Dana became frightened and trying to escape the vehicle multiple times. He states that Carrie pulled over into a wooded area and attempted to kiss Dana. In the midst of the struggle, she had scratched his face, making him jump back, giving Bradley enough time to get out of the car and make her escape. According to Robert, Thomas Carrie supposedly leaped out of the car and chased Dana, running as fast as he could. He alleges that Carrie struck Dana with a tire iron and then put her body in the trunk of the car to move her to where she was found in Maddox Cove. It was apparently Robert who had cleaned Dana's face, fixed her clothes, and tucked her school book under her arm because he felt so bad for her. Robert recalls doing this because he didn't think she was dead. He believed that she was only hurt and that she would be okay in the morning to go to school. One of the biggest claims Robert made was the car used to abduct Dana was actually buried on a property in Whitless Bay that his family used to own, and he alleges that his father can confirm this. You may be wondering that after all this time, why would Robert suddenly decide to come forward with this information? Well, according to Robert, his neighbor, Thomas Carey, had been sexually abusing him for many years. Robert struggled with PTSD and had turned to alcohol to block out the memories of all the trauma he experienced as a child. It wasn't until he became sober and got his life together that the dark memories of his past began to reveal themselves, and he was finally able to remember the events that took place the night of Dana's murder. Police looked into this accusation, but after a 16-month investigation into Robert's statement of witnessing the murder of Dana Briley, the RCMP dismissed his information as his story was extremely inconsistent and didn't match known facts to the case. Basically, what the RCMP gathered was all the information Robert had given was just proof that he did his research on the case and used what was well known in the media. It is also important to note that he changed his story multiple times when being questioned. In saying that, the allegations of sexual assault against Robert were handled by a separate RCMP unit. There are currently no updates on those allegations as of 2021. Soon after the accusations were made and dismissed, Robert and a man named Terry Hines, the creator of the Justice for Dana Bradley Facebook page, shifted the focus of the page honoring Dana into a battle against the authorities and accusing them of a cover-up. This Facebook page caused a huge spread of misinformation and a lot of confusion to the case. Bradley's stepfather, Jeff, did appreciate the page at first as a way to pay respects to his daughter, but both parents were upset to see that the page was being used to spread rumors that were not helpful to the case. He also stated that everything posted on the Facebook page should be taken with a pound of salt. Robert, Terry, and other co-admins appeared to go against the police. They were persistent in the fact that the RCMP was covering up Dana's murder. Post after post made it quite obvious that the Facebook page was no longer about finding justice for Dana, but more about Terry advocating for Robert. Let's rewind a little bit to what was mentioned earlier in Robert's story about how he stated that the car used in Dana's murder was buried over 30 years prior on property that his family used to own. He also claimed that there was one other car, a Plymouth Valiant, that was also buried alongside the Dodge Dark. Coincidentally, both of these cars match the description of the eyewitnesses. After Robert's story was shared, people flooded the RCMP with pleas to dig up the cars in the landfill. However, 
the RCMP stated that there was nothing of evidentiary value to those vehicles because at the time RCMP investigators were using a new DNA technology to retest evidence in the Bradley file to rule out suspects and clear tips from the public and check against existing profiles in the National DNA Database. So basically what that meant was that they already had DNA to test and they just knew that Robert was unreliable. This caused an uproar. A group of civilians, aka the members of the Justice for Dana Facebook page, that were also in support of Robert, were demanding that the cars be excavated, as they firmly believed the trunk of the car could still hold trace evidence, bloodstains, or hair. On May 30th, 2016, the group of civilians started excavating the vehicles off Tufts Road and Whitless Bay. Furthermore, Bradley's parents agreed with the cars being excavated for the sole purpose of stopping the social media rumor mill. They were very adamant that they wanted Terry Hines to stop posting on the Facebook page, and they prayed that this would put the posting to a halt. Just three days before the civilian excavation, on May 27th, 2016, News broke that the police had obtained new DNA from evidence taken from the crime scene at the time of Dana's death. The DNA samples pertaining to the case that had been retested connected the murder to an unknown suspect. Evidence that had been tested numerous times over the years. Because of new technology, male DNA was finally able to be extracted. This evidence eliminated suspects and cleared tips from the public. They also used it to clear the suspect associated with the buried vehicles in Whitless Bay meaning that the DNA sample was not a match for Thomas Carey. It was not a match for anyone suspected in the case. But this new evidence didn't stop the group of civilians led by three retired police officers from their determination to excavate the cars from the landfill. The group had posted on social media that once the excavation was well underway, it became obvious that not only were the vehicles not intact, but they were also degraded in to such an extent that there was absolutely no possibility of retrieving any type of DNA for analysis or any type of trace evidence. The group wrote sewage runoff complete with chemicals and the extensive time factor during which they were buried absolutely and effectively destroyed any possibility of locating any traceable evidence for DNA. The cars were completely destroyed, literally in shambles, and were absolutely useless to the case. Sadly, this is where the media coverage on Dana's case has come to an end for now. Dana's parents are hopeful that the authorities will someday find the killer and get some closure for the death of their daughter who was taken too soon. The murder of Dana Bradley was an event that changed our province forever and one that will always feel close to home. It is said that the death of Dana Bradley was the death of innocence in Newfoundland and Labrador. <sighs> Heavy. Heavy shit, man. That was a really hard case to, uh, to research. I feel yeah. like the more we dug into it, the harder it was, just mentally. Mm -hmm. It's just so sad. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to talk about the case a little bit. We're going to discuss it. Just the, like little things that we made note of that we you know didn't include in the actual case that might not be super relevant, but just like little things. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the car. Let's talk about the car that the Smeaton brothers reported that they seen. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of the research we did, in most of the articles, it was said to be a, like a light yellow, like a beige color, and it mm -hmm. was like really rusted. But I know that you, you mentioned it, and also we've seen that in one part of our research. You yeah. were always, when you were growing up, you were always told that the car was like a lime green color. When I was growing up, I was told that it was, in fact, a lime green four-door Dodge Dart 
Like, that was the, I never even knew there was, like, another car type involved at all. Yeah, and honestly, I never even seen the word lime green until I was looking at the drawing of the suspect that mm-hmm. was done up after, like, interviews from witnesses. Yeah. And it said that they were looking for a lime green car, but that was the only place I seen it, which I, I find it weird that, like, you know, it the media has kind of twisted, Yeah. you know? Obviously, there's going to be stuff that we say in this case that may not be 100% correct, but mm-hmm. we just pulled what we found that was repetitive and stuff from the media. But, like, right. it's just easy to see how stuff changes over the years and how... Definitely. That kind of brings us to the Facebook page thing with the rumor mill, you know? Um, so, before we get into the Facebook page thing, we, we do want to say we have no... We have nothing... No bad blood. We have no bad blood for um, Terry, Terry Hines, Hines, as he sadly did pass away in 2018, so... We don't want to speak ill of him in mm-hmm. any way. We're just going to discuss the Facebook page a little bit. As it's clear, like, the Facebook page spread mass information and kind of took its course from fighting for justice to kind of fighting a battle for an, another person. Mm-hmm. It's sad to think that the Facebook page obviously was created with good intent. Right. It's a place where people can pay their respects for Dana and hopefully yeah. find some stuff that would help the case. But as we know how social media works. Mm-hmm. It didn't always stay like that. Um, yeah, unfortunately. I do know that her stepfather, Jeff, did make a statement about the Facebook page saying that he was like saddened by the fact that they were like, they were calling... Dana our girl Mm -hmm. when he was like she's not like yeah well Jeff actually mentioned as well that he never ever met Terry Terry didn't know Dana and didn't know the family he just kind of wanted Terry to you know Mm -hmm. stop with the rumor stop with the accusation honestly when I started researching this case the first thing I found was the justice for Dana Facebook page and I you know I was reading I was like oh my god this is crazy like Mm -hmm. obviously I was believing most of the stuff I was seeing, yeah. right? And then I started digging. Yeah. And quickly realized that it was not a reputable source. People are given this, like, mm-hmm. information, mm-hmm. and they kind of take that and run with it. Absolutely. And because it's given to them, they kind of believe it before, like, mm-hmm. thinking well, about it. I remember, sh- like, when the car excavation was happening back in 2016. I think I was living in St. John's at the time. I remember wh- when it was happening, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is crazy. Like, I was so... Like, I was like, I can't believe they're finally getting a big break. Like, Mm -hmm. never really knew about the Robert thing. I don't remember. Maybe at the time, maybe I did read it and Mm -hmm. see it. But I, uh, you know, if I had seen that on Facebook going around, like, this story of this guy coming forward, I probably would have believed it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would have ate it up. Staying on topic of Robert for a little bit, um, we do want to say, because we didn't really go into depth on why he was unreliable. Yeah, I made a note here from research I did in... Also, obviously, mm-hmm. you did. Uh, like, flash. <laughs> flash. It flash again. Shut up, bitch. Bitch, it was 5 a.m. Leave me alone. <laughs> anyways, girl, girl, cut this out. <laughs> um, yeah, well, anyways, this Robert guy, he just had a lot of inconsistencies in his statement, as we all know. And a few of them were just too big to mess up such as false injuries like he just made up injuries that were on the body and said that 
the body was in incorrect position than when it was found. He just would change a story, like, often. Yeah, he changed a story a bunch of times. Like, he said he went through her belongings that didn't exist, and, like, he just made up a bunch of shit. I don't man. even think he like, got her outfit right. No, he didn't even get her outfit right. The police did say that it was very obvious that he had, like, did his research on this case, and he was just saying stuff that he read. Yeah, he probably got the information from the Facebook group. He probably got a lot of his information from the same place we got our information, like, in regards to news articles and stuff up until that point. You know, before 2014, there's mm. there's only so much. But after after he came forward, it kind of did blow the case up again. You yeah. know? Totally. So, and I think... For everyone's peace of mind with the car excavation thing, like, maybe it was a good thing that they did dig the cars up because it kind of gave everyone who was really invested in that a peace of mind at the time. That there was, like, no Mm -hmm. usable evidence that, like, wasn't Mm -hmm. being found. You know, if I was in the position of, like, being a, like, a Robert supporter when that was going around... I would have also wanted the cars dug yeah. up because I would have been just hopeful. I think it was yeah. just a lot of it came down that people were just really hopeful. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is just really sad. And like I stated earlier, we're not going to talk about the the um, suspects that we discussed in the case, but we are um, reeling it right back to the beginning to where Dana's body was discovered because there's a few different things I read online, um, just different little details and stuff. Um, a lot of a lot of people think that the way that her body was positioned gave signs that the person who murdered her had remorse or knew her. What are your thoughts on this? I don't know because then we have this guy making claims that he was a child and positioned it, but mm-hmm. that was dismissed. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't the case. So then it goes back to, well, it could have been remorse or someone who knew her. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, well, does the family know who it is? I feel like if the killer knew Dana and her Dana knew the killer, I feel like the car would have been, like they could have identified it. Mm-hmm. And with the description of the killer and the witnesses, because there were other witnesses who did see a man leaving the scene of the crime the night that Dana went missing. There was witnesses in Maddox Cove who did see a man coming out of the woods who described him almost the same as um, the Smeaton brothers did. Over the years, there's been hundreds of people mm-hmm. taken in for questioning. I I have I've, have a theory that maybe it was someone who didn't know her at all and was drifting through yeah. and maybe it could have been a serial killer. The fact that he positioned her like that leads me to believe that but it could have just been like a sign of a serial killer too because they do have remorse. not so much remorse but they have their certain rituals that they do yeah right like mm-hmm. that they want to be known for and sometimes with killings of like younger victims they do tend to like show signs of remorse i don't know it's it's a hard thing to even assume and like then again with like the random act of violence like whoever that was if it was a random person is long gone now I feel like just the way that the whole the I, yeah, whole I don't situation think it was, was the way that she she was going to the bus stop why didn't she just go to the bus stop why did she hit you Yeah what compelled her not to get on the right? bus Right and like you could you couldn't have planned that she was going to be walking home from her friend's house at Unless that exact he knew time it was her mother's birthday I guess is another good point too but it's just I don't know. When she was coming home. It just all seems like, to me, it seems like wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. That's what I That's what I feel. It's just so, like, the whole, like, you know, the car door was broken and he had to lean over and, and, and open it from the inside. Like, yeah. all the cars that were inspected, there was over 800. There was over 1,000, I believe, cars inspected. And, you know, that was a big thing was that the door was broken. Mm-hmm. How many cars were overlooked because of just pure exhaustion? 
from yeah, or skipped and you know or just laziness you really yeah. don't know because like how many people were working this case how many people were actually investigating the cars on their own yeah dna and stuff like that wasn't like it is now oh my God, they no. pulled they pulled a sample of dna and that's what they've gone on for, for years, years. <laughs> but that's just what we know in the public there's right. obviously stuff yeah there's definitely some information they could be keeping to themselves they don't want to release to the public like we just know what we know as far as we know there could be an undercover investigation you never know yeah. with the dna that they did pull is that it did go into the dna database that would have you know went through every single criminal, criminal yeah. and, and could have identified someone by now but like that that shit's running yeah. Now, this person could be alive, they could be dead, but if this person commits a crime and then their DNA is pulled and it goes into that system, you know, it could be, you never Game know. Over. You really never know. Yeah. And someone could also just take this to the grave and we might never have answers, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, to this day, this case remains unsolved. So if you or anyone you know has any information, please contact the RCMP as they're determined to bring justice to Dana by finding the man who took her life. I think it's about time to close the can of worms on this case for today. We're staying hopeful that in the future we will be able to bust out the can opener with an update to finally bring her case to a close. We'd like to thank everyone who's showed us support and excitement leading up to our very first episode. I think at right now we literally have over 800 followers. Yeah, within within like three not even days. a week. Not even a week. Yet. It's actually insane. With me and Bree, we we we've taken this very seriously mm -hmm. within the week that we've been doing this. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's definitely. It's just it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Much, very humbling yeah <laughs> but yeah thank you guys so much for just like the immediate response you've given us and all the encouraging messages we've gotten we've seen them all we've seen them all we, we might not respond to every single one but we have read them all so if you do not get a reply don't take it personally we just have a lot on our plates in yeah. saying that both of us are always on the hunt for new cases to look into so if you do have any suggestions please send us a dm on our instagram at meddling kids podcast and we will for sure get around to seeing them absolutely also right now we are looking for conspiracy theories and or ghost stories you'd like to hear urban legends also falls under this category <laughs> um i would like to you guys to sound off as to if um mothman is oh my god We're a not ghost story fucking... or an urban legend i think mothman could be definitely considered as a paranormal slash conspiracy theory story that we could do a whole episode on but yes that's what I've been saying. Okay, we'll talk about it. Anyways. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we'll be talking. <laughs>